Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Ali Mekaj, who is a lecturer in social inequalities at the University of Cambridge, about his new book, Black Middle Class Britannia, Identities, Repertoires, Cultural Consumption. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This, uh, this is a great book, uh, both in terms of um, its really sort of urgent subject matter, but also in terms of how it contributes um, to the kind of study of culture more generally. Um, and I'm, I'm delighted to have, to have read it and been, um, been, been talking to you today. And I guess there's loads of things we could talk about to kind of set the scene. Um, but I suppose the first question is like, what got you interested in uh, writing and thinking about uh, cultural consumption, particularly from the point of view of, uh, why race was kind of maybe like missing um, from the study of cultural consumption. Yeah, um, so I think the interest started actually from my interest in critical race theory because um, with critical race theory, we have this idea of racism being structural. So racism really refers to the unequal distribution of resources across the racial hierarchy. And I was kind of thinking through that and then thinking, we have this structural account of racism, but we also have, you know, in, in my case, the black middle class. And this middle class, black middle class, are economically privileged. So they have access to a fair amount of economic resources. So how do we kind of reconcile the existence of a black middle class with this structural idea of racism? And so the way I approached it was by turning attention to the cultural realm and looking at the unequal distribution of cultural resources. Um, and so that's really how my interest in this project kind of um, started off. It was, it was very much kind of trying to bring together my interests in cultural sociology with critical race theory. I mean, you, you sort of touched on there the kind of, I suppose, um, absence or, or kind of like missing elements um, in, in the study of culture, which is this engagement with critical race theory. And, you, you know, there, there are some examples of it, but it's not been... Um, the kind of central um, lens through which we've seen culture. And, and I guess that brings us to a question that's almost the kind of uh, the inverse or the sort of flip side to that, which is why would we be so interested in, in culture and, and cultural consumption more generally? Um, I suppose the, you know, the other side to the fact that the sociology of culture hasn't been um, strongly engaged with, with critical race theory has been uh, maybe the opportunity um, to kind of understand why culture matters. Yeah, I think there's two really interesting um, points to pick up on that. One of them is that this general kind of bifurcation we see in sociology between the sociology of class on the one hand and the sociology of race on the other. And I find that bifurcation really interesting because 
class and race, as well as things like gender, sexuality, ability, and so on. These are all massive structures of inequality that cut across so many different areas of social life. And yet we've been really happy in sociology to have a sociology of class, race, gender, and so on, um, as well as having then topic-based subdisciplines like the sociology of culture, the sociology of um, economic sociology, political sociology, and so on. And what you see, especially with race, is the way that it's kind of been ghettoized as its own subfield, so it doesn't manage to kind of reach into those other subdisciplines we were talking about. Because I wouldn't want to pass this off as my own um, thought or idea. When I was having my Viva with Satnam Verdi and Les back a few years ago, one thing they said was that, especially in Britain, much of the sociology of race has itself been a sociology of class. And so especially in Britain, there's always been a connection between class, culture, and race, which sociologists of race from Stuart Hall and Claudia Jones through to, you know, more recently, Satnam Verdi, Paul Gilroy. Um, all of these people have quite kind of, you know, fundamentally made it very fundamental to their, to their sociological paradigms. And so on the one hand, I'm trying to kind of um, pay some kind of respect to that tradition. And then on the other hand, you, you had this, this comment about why do we even want to study culture and cultural consumption in the first place? And that's actually where I turn to lots of developments, you know, more continentally or, or even in the US in cultural sociology. Because for me, in this book, one thing I'm doing is I'm defining culture really broadly in terms of focusing on cultural repertoires. Now, drawing on the work of people like Michel Lamont and uh, Leroux, these cultural repertoires are basically a toolkit of habits and skills from which people construct strategies of action, or they're what Michel Lamont describes as the set of tools available to individuals to make sense of the reality they experience. So read this way, culture is important to study because it's one of the most fundamental aspects of human existence, namely how we make sense of the world around us. Now, on the other hand, I'm also looking at culture and cultural consumption more specifically through this lens of cultural capital. Um, and really briefly, you know, when I'm talking about cultural capital, I'm talking about embodied cultural capital, you know, how we dress, how we speak and so on, objectified cultural capital, the value that we give to particular cultural objects like works of art and institutionalized cultural capital, cultural capital, where the value is bestowed by an institution, such as a degree or an educational credential. Um, now, the links of why we should study some of these forms of cultural capital are really clear for some of them. So with institutionalized cultural capital, you know, so for example, with uh, degrees, university degrees, it's kind of obvious why we would study them because, for instance, where I work in Cambridge, the graduates earn on average £20,000 more than graduates from Anglia Ruskin. So we can see that cultural capital in that respect um, has different economic returns. But for me, cultural capital doesn't just reproduce material inequalities. It's also absolutely essential for the creation and reproduction of symbolic boundaries between different social groups. And it's here again that I'm referring to Michel Lamont and Leroux's work about the function of cultural capital to justify exclusion of people from particular social groups and to legitimize that exclusion. And so those are the reasons why I think the way that I'm viewing uh, culture in terms of cultural repertoires and cultural capital is, is really important. The other thing going on is 
I got a really strong sense of how you'd engage with the interviewees and you tried to take seriously, not just, and, and you mentioned this at, at the very beginning, you know, the existence of the black middle class as a fraction um, of middle class society generally, but also bringing critical race theory to the study of cultural consumption, but to try and take seriously those repertoires, those uh, kind of modes of engagement, um, modes of doing and, and being uh, black middle class that your interviewees, um, I guess, kind of, you know, told you, but you also, you know, developed uh, theoretically. And that's really the the, the heart of the book. I, th- I think, you, you know, you sort of outline um, three different uh, modes of black middle class identity, and it'd be great to to sort of talk through them and have a think about maybe how they work in, in practice as well. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, one thing I was doing was, especially when we work with categories or systems of categorization, like race and class and gender and so on. Um, it's important not to see these groups as having any kind of pre-existence. So I kind of went down this route of very much informed by Pierre Bourdieu's work on social space, the idea that social groups exist twice, once as statistical clusters. So a black middle class person might tick a box on a census saying they're black and tick a box saying that they're in a professional occupation. But these groups also have to be made through practical social action, which is obviously where where this notion of cultural consumption comes in. And it was this kind of qualitative, practical dimension of the black middle class that I was really interested in. And you're completely right. You know, one thing that occurred to me fairly quickly was that it would be a misrepresentation to talk about this social group as if it is one monolithic social group. Um, And the way I kind of approached that was through theorizing what I refer to as the triangle of black middle class identity. And I look at how there are three different identity modes, strategic assimilation, class-minded, and ethno-racial autonomous, and how towards each of these different poles, the people are basically drawing upon different cultural repertoires, and in virtue of drawing upon different cultural repertoires, actually have radical, dif- radically different dispositions towards the world and act in the world in radically different ways as well. Um, so very briefly, what I saw at the strategic assimilation Um, identity mode are these repertoires of code switching and cultural equity. So code switching was basically this principle that you have to act slightly differently when you're around white middle-class people in order to command some kind of respect and acceptability. To use an interviewee's quotes, um, I can talk about Martin, who's a barrister, and he talks about being at board meetings and he says, you have to be aware that people will receive information from you slightly differently depending on who you are. And this becomes a problem for black professionals because he says, um, he based, he says one illustration of that is that I noticed that if I said something, which sort of put some passion into what I was saying, it was overpowering. It was like throwing a whole ton of seasoning into the soup. It was just overpowering people. Um, and he's, compares that to his white colleagues who could turn up their passion level to a six or a seven, whereas he would have to kind of keep to a two. So that's what code switching is all about. And it's connected to this other repertoire of cultural equity, the idea that black people should strive to be equal to white people, not just in terms of economic capital, but also in cultural capital. 
This is contrasted with the ethno-racial autonomous identity mode where the repertoires are what I call browning. And I take that term from Shirley Tate. And it's very much about this idea of trying to make race, in inverted commas, a really salient part of your identity. So especially for black women, this might involve having natural hair, for instance. And one of my participants, Sarah, says having natural hair is about challenging white supremacist ideas. So there's very much this contestation to whiteness in these people's repertoires. And this is connected to the repertoire of Afrocentrism, the idea that uh, the African diaspora shares a connected history, it shares roots, cultural roots, and how they often gear their cultural consumption towards those shared roots. And then lastly, that we have the class-minded identity modes. And um, here the repertoires are of deracialization. So these people say that race isn't a very big part of their identity and they identify more with being middle class. And also a repertoire of post-racialism. They think that racism isn't a structural problem in British society anymore. And so while my aim has never been to fix people to these identity modes, I found that kind of triangle of identity a useful model for pointing to some of the diversities that I had in my sample. And, and they play out differently in different um, spaces, in, in different places. At the moment, we're seeing, both in the UK and, and in the US, uh, a renewed engagement with the question of what we might think of as like traditional middle-class cultural spaces, what goes on in, you know, the theatre or the concert hall or, or the museum. And it was really interesting um, to be presented with an analysis that you know, really stressed that we shouldn't see the black middle class as having a kind of monolithic uh, single relationship with uh, traditional middle class uh, cultural spaces, spaces that are traditionally coded white. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually there are you know, um, very different uh, modes of engagement, very different um, kind of understandings of these spaces depending on those uh, modes of expressing identity. Yeah, I think that's one reason why the triangle of identity for me was such an appealing um, model for analysis is because it helped explain these situations where all of the participants were agreed on something. So all of the participants agreed that these traditional middle-class cultural spaces are white spaces, but they all have different ideas of why they are white spaces and they will have different strategies of action for how to deal with these white spaces. So just to clarify what I mean, the class-minded, the people towards the class-minded identity mode, we've already mentioned how they don't believe that racism is an issue. So when they see these kind of museums or classical music concert halls being dominated by white audiences, for them, that's not the result of racism. It's the result of other black people self-selecting out of these cultural pursuits. To use a quote, there's a participant called Keith and he's talking about art museums and he says, I see in London people don't do things. They don't go to the Natural History Museum with their children because they see it as not for them, even though it belongs to them and and is absolutely for them. But no one has told them it's not for them, so they must work it out for themselves. There is a lot available in the whole country, not just London, that people just think is not for them and they don't go for it. So that's very much kind of like the class-minded rationalization of those instances. On the other hand, those towards the ethno-racial autonomous and strategic assimilation identity modes 
argue that these places are white spaces, not just because they're dominated by white audiences, but because when I go there as a black person, I'm made to feel uncomfortable and as if I don't belong there. And, you know, just from the top of my head, one of the examples that stands out is someone describing someone who was actually a patron of an opera house, uh, a black woman who's a patron of the opera house. She's in the bathroom and someone says to her, oh, is this your first time at the opera house? So those kinds of microaggressions that almost kind of police the white space. Um, but even here, despite the fact that both the ethno-racial autonomous and strategic assimilation individuals um, agree that this is a white space and it's policed by these microaggressions, they have different strategies of action. So those towards strategic assimilation still maintain that despite the fact I'm going to be made uncomfortable in these spaces, I need to do this form of cultural consumption in order to have this cultural equity with my white middle-class colleagues um, and associates. So some participants describe this experience as constantly trying to play catch up with with very rich white people who had gone to museums and had like 50 plus books sitting down in their living rooms. Um, Another person talks about in the end, once you get to that certain level, you're going to be around a lot of white people. A lot of us find ourselves as the only person of color in many spaces. So we've got to learn about a lot of stuff they do, cultural things, and a lot of the time get bored. But yeah, so we also want to make our own version. So the strategic assimilation is very much kind of like, another quote would be, I'm interested in not, they consume this not because they're interested in them necessarily, but because they think there's an expectation that they'll be interested in them. And there's an expectation that they have to know about them. So here the cultural consumption is very much about kind of striving towards that cultural equity. On the other hand, ethno-racial autonomous people do self-select out of these spaces because they don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable. Um, And just to use a really brief example, I was at the Somerset house with one of my participants, Maddie. And she described this back to me in an interview as saying people were looking at us like we were part of the exhibition itself. So why would you kind of go to those spaces? Why would you go to these cultural spaces if you're made to feel so unwelcome? Um, And so, yeah, that's some of the ways that the triangle of identity helps us to go beyond not just what people are consuming, but why they're consuming it and how they're consuming it. We get to the whole phenomenology of cultural consumption. And how does that work um, for cultural forms that are explicitly coded as as, as black? You, you discuss both, you know, the kind of the idea of black cultural capital, uh, which I found a, a really useful concept, um, but also you, you extend that analysis to think through how these three modes of identity might um, tell us about, to use the, the phrase you just used, you know, the phenomenology of, of cultural consumption of, of, of black cultural forms. Yeah, I think this issue of black cultural capital was um, was really important for my analysis. And I owe a lot of thanks to people like uh, Prudence Carter, Patricia Banks, Darren Wallace, all of whom have also kind of studied how this um, black cultural capital plays out, both in the US and in the UK. Um, what's really central to this concept of black cultural capital is not that we're talking about cultural forms that are just essentially black that the participants themselves or the people consuming it themselves decode it as having some kind of meaning for racial equality uh, or um, uplifting notions of blackness and black culture more generally. So just to kind of clarify what I mean by that, 
and this is particularly apparent for those towards the ethno-racial autonomous and, and um, strategic assimilation identity modes, because as we described, because class-minded people don't really see themselves as being black, they see themselves as middle class, they don't tend to be as interested in these cultural forms. Now, for those other people, one thing black cultural capital does is that it provides a counter to the stereotypes or what Patricia Hill Collins calls controlling images of blackness. So uh, one of my participants, Miriam, for instance, talks about theatre and literature and how it's all knife crime. Whenever, whenever they talk about black people, it's all knife crime. Sorry, we need something else for us. Not all of us are just hanging out with kids, stabbing each other all the time. So there's an idea that, yeah, black cultural capital can allow us to challenge some of these stereotypes. On the other hand, black cultural capital also connects with discussions that people like Stuart Hall and even Paul Gilroy were having over representation. Um, So to use uh, an example from the same interviewee, Miriam, she talks about Chineke, which is an all-black orchestra. And she says, when we have things like this, it makes us feel more like we belong in these spaces. So even if the rest of the audience is white, they won't be pointing at you and saying, why is this person here? But they'll see that because the cultural producer is black, it means that the cultural consumer can also be black. Um, So we have all of these debates about representation going on here. On the other hand, there's something a bit more kind of, not necessarily deeper, but something a bit more phenomenological going on as well. And it's to do with kind of connecting with the African diaspora, which is perhaps a bit more salient towards the ethno-racial autonomous identity mode. So Dawn is one person who talks about how gospel music, she decodes this as black cultural capital, because in her words, um, I like to sing. And if I'm singing back to them, then it feels as though there is something that connects me to other generations before and to the whole diaspora and to the continent. So it's very much about how the cultural consumption and the forms of culture that they're prioritizing connect to this kind of African diaspora more generally. Um, Now, there's just one salient difference, perhaps, that would be useful to talk about. And it's that what we see with the ethno-racial autonomous consumers is that they prioritize consuming this black cultural capital because through doing that, they're able to position themselves as the legitimate consumers of a particular cultural form. This is contrasted to the other cultural forms we were talking about with traditional middle class culture where Black people are constantly made to feel like they aren't the legitimate consumers of these cultural forms. So one of my participants, Dominic, he's talking about literature, and he's talking about James Nolan and Zadie Smith and so on, and what he sees as Black literature. And he says, how can white consumers be the legitimate consumers of this? White settings are pure. They are not diverse. So how can they say, I read in a book last week, blah, 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 blah. What do you think? when there's no one to say what they thought of other than them. So where's that expansive conversation coming from? So it's very much painting Black consumers as being the legitimate voices on these cultural forms. Um, On the other hand, those towards the ethno-racial autonomous identity mode are more focused on how Black cultural capital can actually foster interracial conversations and interracial solidarity. One example being participants talking about the use of reggae music at an anti-austerity march in London um, and how they disagreed with her dad. The dad's very much like, reggae is for us. We are the legitimate consumers of this. And she's very much like, um, we are able to share a message and a solidarity through this cultural form. 
So that's one of the kind of interesting differences as well that develops between how strategic assimilation and um, the ethno-racial autonomous kind of repertoires lead to different forms of cultural consumption, even if they are consuming the same cultural product. I guess the book sort of concludes by uh, taking these understandings of cultural consumption practices and thinking about um, what they mean for for identity and you know and again this you know is something that's happening um, in the states and across Europe but um, the questions of um, the creation of a particular kind um, of Black British identity are, are really you know crucial to this moment here in the UK, whether it's in terms of you know, representation through um, particular objects or whether it's in terms of just, you know, pretty appalling examples of everyday racism on television uh, chat shows. Mm. And I, I'm interested to know how your, um, both your participants, but also your, your three modes understand that sense of black British identity. Um, it's, you know, it, Something you mentioned at the start, you know, the, the idea of um, cultural studies and that kind of, you know, mm. whole sense of a cultural studies tradition being um, something that grapples with uh, questions of black British identity um, and culture in a way that, you know, perhaps um, the sociologist culture hadn't done or, or hadn't foregrounded. And it's interesting that, you know, in order to do this, you draw on this idea of, of the double consciousness. Mm. Yeah, so I think that um, this is really interesting because there was a really great tension um, that many of my participants had with what is actually meant in Britain when we talk about black history. And obviously we're seeing a lot of these debates um, kind of resurging at the moment in in the context of Black Lives Matter. Um, And what they said was that in Britain, one thing we're really good at doing is displacing all of our problems of race and racism to the United States. So when we do teach black history, we're actually often talking about the history of the United States. And we don't really talk about black history in Britain. Um, now, of course, there are connections here, but th- this is just, um, this is kind of like a general point of race discourse in Britain. Um And participants would point out how this kind of travels over to the cultural sphere as well. So if you think about lots of dominant exhibitions that we've had um, in the UK, lots of these art exhibitions are quite happy to talk about, I don't know, the civil rights movement in the US, as you saw with Soul of a Nation at the Tate. But they aren't as happy and they aren't as easy and they don't seem to be showing any willingness to really talk about those same issues in the UK. Um, and so lots of my participants therefore made it a really high priority to deliberately search out cultural forms, whether that's literature, music, or, um, art, visual culture that explores dynamics specifically of black Britishness. And the way I analyzed this was, as you said, through this, the Boisian lens of double consciousness. Um, and it's here, once again, that we see a split, particularly between the ethno-racial autonomous identity mode and the strategic assimilation identity mode. Because to the strategic assimilation identity mode, double consciousness is really this process of having two parts of your identity that you feel like you need to reconcile. So having being Black 
and being British and wanting to reconcile us to supposedly disparate identities. So a participant like Miriam, for instance, talks about how she deal she dealt with that through um, searching out this this thing called Shakespeare Shorts, and it was kind of like Shakespeare performed through what she saw as black cultural expression, so rap, um, and how that basically allowed her to synthesize these two different parts of her identity into one through an act of cultural consumption. On the other hand. Those towards the ethno-racial autonomous identity mode are more concerned with double consciousness as what the boys calls second sight. Second sight is this idea that in virtue of being a racialized outsider within your own nation, you gain a certain understanding of how your nation actually works and how inequality works within that nation. And so these kinds of participants would specifically talk about forms of literature, whether that's Zadie Smith. Mallory Blackman, Selvin, James Lamming, and so on, um, and how these writers provided critiques of Britain and British Empire that they now deliberately seek out in their cultural consumption because it enables them to learn more about how blackness has worked in Britain and how it's been excluded from definitions of Britishness. Um, and so that's kind of like a way that I kind of played around with Du Bois's notion of double consciousness. Um, and kind of put it into conversation with that triangle of identity approach. I mean, there's all kinds more um, things we could draw out from the book, um, particularly um, in terms of what um, this analysis means when we think about both, you know, the kind of the study of culture, but also um, how we might think about kind of, you know, social change. Um, in, in in the UK at a moment where, you know, uh, thoughts about social change are really um, kind of well represented in, in things like media discussions. And you'd hope maybe as well in, in terms of popular consciousness as well. But to wrap up, I'm quite interested in uh, where your analysis is, is going to go next and um, to what extent have you got, you know, a kind of further set of projects in this space um, or are you starting to to work on things that are um, kind of you know distinctive and and different to your um, engagement with culture? Yeah, so I think that um, this project has kind of sent me into into kind of two connected but kind of different um, roads of analysis. Because on the one hand, I you know I'm currently publishing on kind of like much more theoretical discussions about how we do sociology, the kinds of knowledges that we're excluding in the canon and so on. Um, and lots of people think that's actually quite different to this first book. But I think that in this first, in this book is also a critique of how, for example, sociologists of class have thought of class as something that can be studied outside of the dynamics of racialization. So this book really did open up for me this kind of um, all of these sets of questions about, you know, how do we do sociology? What happens when we do sociology in particular ways? And what happens when we exclude certain knowledges in sociology? So it's kind of raised those questions. But yeah, I'm also working still on this issue of um, race, class and culture. I'm trying to kind of branch out to, to be a bit more comparative. So what I'm working on at the moment is a project looking at black elites in um the UK, South Africa, and the US, and basically just looking at how the different kind of demographical backgrounds and historical contexts of these places leads to different degrees 
of black elite involvement in anti-racism across these three countries. Um, and as a focus on cultural institutions, still, so looking at how the black elite might use cultural institutions to kind of foster social change. Um, but it's also branching off a bit more to kind of civic participation and so on. Because one thing that I did find really interesting, well, one of the things I find really interesting about this book um, and the findings of it was that loads of these people are earning a lot of money. And yet they still talk about uh, this kind of ethno-racial solidarity, this kind of shared collective solidarity they have with other Black people in Britain. And and so the dominant sociology of class doesn't really talk too much about solidarities between middle class and working class people. So this is a really interesting dynamic that we now have when we bring race into the equation. And I guess that's still what I'm working on with this new comparative project. 